0: Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And our text this morning will be verses six or 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. Let me begin by just asking a what may seem to be an odd question, and maybe a question that we wouldn't want to even discuss how do we die well? How do we die well? How do we face that day when we will close our eyes for the last time? The answer that we see given in the text is very simple, and that is you, you live well. That's how you die well, is you live well. How did the faithful before us live, and how is it that we see that they died? Well, as this text is going to show us this morning, is they lived without a home, they lived seeking a home, and they lived in realization that there was a better home awaiting them. And so how do we die well? Well, we die well without a home, seeking a home, and knowing there is a better home awaiting us. We live, and that's how we die as Christians. This is the Word of God in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Notice what it begins with is it begins in verse 13 with the fact that they were without a home, that they did not have a home here on earth, but rather they're described as strangers and exiles, not just in a particular land, not just in a particular place, but on earth. So the entirety of the existence of the patriarchs that we have seen mentioned so far was one as being in exile and one as being strangers. But the notable fact about them is this it says this in the final statement of the patriarchs these all died in faith and specifically the these all who is that referring to it's referring to Abraham Isaac Jacob and Sarah that's who's been mentioned so far and you might think well what about what about Abel and Enoch well it's it's specifically here in verse 13 referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. The final statement on them. And we can read their flaws in Scripture. We can read of their mistakes. The final statement on them and upon their life was not away from me, I never knew you, but welcome home, my good and faithful servant. These all died in faith. They all died in faith. Faith. They persevered through their pilgrimage all the way to the end. And there's something remarkable about this testimony in that they died in the faith and that they died as faithful men and women of God. What is remarkable about this is that they began their journey of faith awaiting a promise to be fulfilled. But what does the text say? As they have lived their life in anticipation of this great promise, it says, not having received the things promised. And so isn't that a remarkable statement, that they're made these promises by God, but yet when they get to the end of their life, they haven't actually realized the physical uh, Fulfillment of those promises, but yet what is what remained in them? They were faithful. They lived lives that were susceptible to destruction, fraud, loss of property, disappointments, and struggles. And they dealt with all of those things. And rather than becoming distraught over the peril of living life, They actually persevered and continued faithfully all the way until they took their last breath. And so this tells us something very important about these patriarchs is they didn't need to receive those promises in a temporal manner. They didn't need to receive the the temporary manifestation of the promises of God. And why? Why didn't they have to actually have the land? Why is it that Abraham didn't get to see the multitude as he was promised and get to see the fulfilling of taking all of the land? Neither did Isaac or Jacob or Sarah. Why didn't they get to see that, yet they persevered? is because they had those things by faith. In fact, If you remember, that's how faith is described. In verse 1 of chapter 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And as we looked at that verse, we made made this point that it's to look at those things that are not yet here, but they're realized in the present. It's much like your eternal salvation. When you trust in Christ, you are given eternal life. You're not given eternal life when you just die and then live in heaven. It is no, rather you are given eternal life now, even though we know this life ceases. And so they had these things by faith. And this is what we have to recognize as we live our pilgrimage and we ask, how do I die well? Is this, is without the eyes of faith, these all would have died in disappointment. These all would have died as depressed because they hadn't received the things that they were promised, yet they gave their whole life towards those things. And we too will be disappointed in this life without the eyes of faith to guide us and direct us. And so it's amazing we read that even when the fulfillment of the promises had not come to pass and they had not recognized them, they died in faith. They died in faith. I think of the Apostle Paul as he was facing his own death, and what a faithful servant of Christ Paul was. We read him writing this to Timothy, which is Second Timothy is Paul's last will and testament, if you, if you will. He says this in verse 6 of chapter 4, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What's incredible about what Paul says is already awaiting him as he approaches death is not only awaiting him and his demise, but it's for all who have loved his appearing. For all who are in Christ, this is how they they persevere to the end, that they, they fight the good fight. They have not departed from the faith, but they have rather finished the faith. Paul's writing of his death, which tells us that Paul was thinking about what? His death. Now, Paul was possibly going to be executed, so that might force one to think about death a little more than just living life. But the reality is there's one thing that's certain of all of us, and that is that we will die. And so we don't like to think about death. We put it off. We oftentimes think it will never come to us. But yeah, what do we, we see actually that this is something that Scripture doesn't hide or or not talk about, but rather something the scriptures talk about is dying. Scripture points us to the fact that there's something beyond death. And it's something that we're to look forward to and that we have hope in. It's something that we are to to long for, to to desire. And that really becomes the whole point of this chapter in their lives. And, And what we gain from this too is that this is supposed to be something we long for, we look forward to. But there's impediments of a desire of building this world rather than looking forward to the one to come. And so I think that we should think about dying, and how do we die well? Well, we live well. And how do we live well? We live according to God's word, by his grace. They lived by faith, therefore, here it is, they lived by faith, therefore they died in faith. And so you prepare for death by by living by faith now. We actually do not know that day when we will die, do we? But Scripture tells us very clearly in Job 14.5 that a man's days are determined. You you know your birthday, but you don't know your death day. God does. He's already determined that day. And there's nothing that will, will, will stop that from happening when God is determined. But we don't know it. Death comes upon us quickly and without warning. We see that tragically even this last week in our own community, right? It comes so quickly. Even when someone's given a diagnosis that death is imminent, there's still no way, even in that point, to mentally wrap our mind around it and prepare for it. And even when we're told that this is the, the prognosis, we still are facing an unknown hour. And why don't we want to think about death? Well, because death is unnatural. It's the separation of the body from the soul, and Scripture actually makes it clear what it means to be human is to be body and soul. And so that separation of body and soul is unnatural, and we fear it. And why is there a fear of it? Because of that unnatural aspect of it. But what does the Scriptures tell us about death is that we do not grieve or fear like those without hope but rather we have a great hope of a future resurrection. And so let us, as a, let us as a people that, that, that bear the name of Christ, live for Christ now and not waste our life by putting off things until tomorrow. Let us now live for Christ, that way we, we die in Christ. This is how the patriarchs lived, and in, in part, it's because we see in the text that God had showed them greater realities, and before we look at those greater realities, has God shown you in his word greater realities for you? Well, the answer is obviously Yes. Well, look what it was for them. The text says, But having seen them and greeted them from afar. And what is it that they had seen? It's the, the things promised. And so, while on the one hand they did not get to see the unfolding of these things, yet at the same time we read in Scripture that they saw them. They were given promise of land, of offspring, and kings. But really, those things were just a glimpse of what they, they really, truly saw, and what they truly saw was the Messiah. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, how could they see Jesus? I'm not saying that they saw Jesus incarnate in the flesh, but they saw the Messiah. In fact, Jesus makes it so very clear in John chapter 8 and verse 56, we read this, Jesus said, "Your father Abraham rejoiced." That he would see my day, he saw it and was glad. Jesus says that Abraham saw his day. And notice what Jesus says about that. And this is so crucial. We see this because it, it, it matches what's said in Hebrews is that he rejoiced and was glad. The text in Hebrews says he greeted it. And what does that word greet mean? The word greet means to receive with thankfulness. It wasn't a, 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 a begrudging greeting, but rather it was, a, it was an embrace of that which he saw. What does it mean that he has seen these things or that he has saw these things? I found this only in one commentary, but it was so interesting. It was William Perkins, who was a, an English Puritan. He, he said this phrase... To see is a phrase used by mariners, as they are far off on the sea. Uh, they, they can they can note that there's something out there in the distance, such as land, but it's not until they they get up into a higher point that they're able to make out what the land is and the buildings on the land, and even though they're far off from them, they can see the structures and they can see from what could not be seen unless they're at a higher distance. And his whole point is this, is that they had to go to a higher plane in order to see those things, and so what is that higher plane for the people of God? It's faith. It's faith by which they're able to see those things. It's by faith that one crawls up to the top of the mast and is able to see the land and the buildings and make out the structures and be able to determine what they are. That's what Abraham saw. It was that he had the eyes of faith. But there's also something else that scripture teaches us about what the those patriarchs and what the prophets and what what Abraham saw. We see this in 1 Peter in chapter 1 and verse 10. Peter writes this concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring, so that means that they're asking, they're searching these things out, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them. You'll notice this twofold aspect of what those in the Old Testament did, is they searched these things out. How did they search them out? Well, they searched them out according to the given word of God. And then the text also says, not only did they search these things out, but then second, it was revealed to them. So they searched out the Word of God, they thought about the Word of God, they pondered the Word of God, and then also God reveals to them what it is that they were seeking, or what it was that they were seeking. Now they had very little revelation. They had very little revelation. What you and I hold in our hands this morning is far more revelation than they had. They had a piece of the puzzle. We got the whole puzzle put together with no pieces missing. We have a greater knowledge. We have 2,000 years of church teaching on this fullness of the puzzle that we've been given. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us teaching these things. But what's interesting is what they had, they used, and they grew by it. They used what they had. Do we use what we have even though we have more than they had? It means that they desired to grow in faith. It was by God's grace that they grew in faith but they strove to grow in faith. So we must strive by God's grace also to grow in faith. And why we don't, why we don't grow, is because we don't exercise the means God uses for our growth. Part of the fact that it was revealed to them was that they were inquiring of these things. We see how that works. God is fully sovereign over all things. God doesn't change. He's eternal. He's determined the beginning from the end, but then God uses means for the accomplishment of his will. His accomplishment of his will is the will for your life is that you grow in holiness, that you grow in faith. But the means that God uses to grow in faith are actual means that we have to put to use. And we're responsible for that. Now, not only... Did they grow? But I want you to notice they shared their testimony. Notice what the text says. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And that that word acknowledged is simply a confession of faith. They confessed something greater. Let me give you two examples of this. In Genesis chapter 23... In verse 4, we see one confession, and you can find this several places. But this is a passage you, you, you were probably aware with, where Abraham says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. God had promised him that land. Yet, what does he have to do? Buy it. And when he buys it, what does he say about it? I am a sojourner, he confessed openly this was not his. You notice in chapter 47 at the end of Jacob's life, and still in Genesis in verse 9, we read this as Jacob speaking to Pharaoh. He says this, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. He admits he he never had a home. And this is what he says about his time on life, and he says, "Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning." It's interesting how Jacob views the end of his life, doesn't he? Few and evil have been the days of my years," he says. And he says that he was without a home. In part, this is a part of their profession of faith. It's a profession of faith openly and publicly that they were strangers and exiles of this earth. And I think we have to emphasize that what the text says, it doesn't say they were strangers and exiles in the land that they were promised. That's not how it's described. They're described as exiles and strangers on the earth. It's amazing. This was not just over the land of Israel. And so when they say they were sojourners of this earth, it was a renunciation of worldly concerns and embracement of heavenly realities. That's what it means to be a sojourner. And there's an incredible lesson for us in this, those that are not resting in Christ, who is our fulfilled promise, simply spin their wills in the attainment of earthly pleasure that never satisfies. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. So, how do we die well? How do we die well? How do we die at the end of it not receiving some of the things that we thought? in faith so they were without a home and then yet it says in verses 14 and 15 they're seeking a home I want you to notice this in verse 14 for people who speak thus that thus is back to their acknowledgement for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland And so they were actively living and looking towards the greater reality. And who speaks thus, relates to the confession, they were exiles, sojourners on this earth. So they spoke openly of the fact that this earth was not their home. So not only did they speak it, but that's actually how they lived. And it's a strange phrase to see they're seeking a homeland. Think about that for a moment. How do you seek a homeland? It literally, if you were to do a more written, literal translation of, of the Greek there, it's the fatherland. How, how do you seek that? Where you are born is your fatherland. Where your, your roots are, that is your fatherland. You don't seek that, you're born into that, but what, is it, what do we already learn? They didn't have a home here. And so they're seeking a home, meaning they're actively living for this homeland. That, that word seeking is to actively look forward of making an effort to reach something. So they're actively working and seeking towards this promised homeland to the promised fatherland, And even though they were born in an actual, we would call a homeland, a fatherland, they don't count it as it. They don't look back, but rather they look forward. And verse 15 makes this so clear. Verse 15 says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. If they had been thinking about it, and you can't help but think of Lot's wife here, can you? Lot looks forward. Lot's wife looks back. And really, when we we look at when she looks back, what that means is she looked back with longing, and she turned into a pillar of salt. They did not look fa- for, uh, backward, but they looked forward. They did not consider Mesopotamia their home. They did not consider that the fatherland. James spent 20 years there, but he did not consider it home. He could have stayed with Laban and had security and had the comforts of family, but actually his actions show us he was rather committed to the Lord. In fact, in terms of the homeland, this is what Abraham warns Isaac about. In Genesis chapter 24, in verse 6, Abraham gives these instructions. Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. That was, do not take my son back to the fatherland. Abraham warns of not going back there. Why? Because their comfort and their hope was not found there. It was found somewhere else. I think the, one of the reasons this is statement is here in this Hebrew book of Hebrews is because what were the Hebrews tempted to do? To whom this letter was written, the Hebrews were tempted to look back on the comforts of Judaism. And, and, and just so a historical context, Judaism was the one religion that the Romans tolerated. And the reason I mean they destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD because they were the Jews had rebelled but Rome accepted Judaism throughout all its territories it was an accepted religion Christianity wasn't Christianity they were called atheists and many times they were persecuted And the Hebrews, as we have already seen in the text, clearly states, they had faced persecution in the past. They were likely to face it again. He gives them this example. This world's not your home. You may face persecution here. You may face setbacks here. But that's not the end of the story. That's not all there is. There's something greater awaiting you, so endure through it. You see, this is a temptation for us all. In in small ways and subtle ways, because we are faced with opportunities to compromise our faith constantly, aren't we? We're 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 constantly faced with 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 challenges to return to the desires of the flesh, whatever that may be. And what we find is that in the Christian life, a compromise here, a little compromise there, and then what do we find? We're compromised. That's because that's our desire to look back on the pleasures of the homeland rather than looking forward to something else. And we see what we have to look forward to in verse 16, and that is a better home. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, For he has prepared for them a city. Their desire was not of earthly, but of the spiritual. And if we set our heart on earth, we will not desire a greater heavenly city. You can't desire both at the same time. And it shows that they desired one. So does this mean we're not to enjoy this world? Does this mean that we're to live as hermetic monks? Does this mean that we're to be uninvolved with things that are here and now? No, that's not what it means. Yes, you enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy the wonderful things of this world that we are given. And there's many of them, right? We've been given so many blessings You have enjoyment of the earth and the worldly things even when you're without temporal blessings. You oftentimes find greater joy in people living in third world countries than you do in the richest cities in the world. Why is that? So it doesn't mean that we're uninvolved. In fact, we're actually given a responsibility to love God and love our neighbor. So part of this pilgrimage on life in in this world is actually doing what God tells us to do, which is to love our neighbor. We also have uh, civic obligations. We have responsibility as people within communities. As we saw this morning in Sunday school, in the Noahic Covenant, That part of the Noahic Covenant was the institution of government to preserve human life. And that actually, that's part of our responsibility. So should we have a concern civically? Yes, we should. We should. We should seek justice. And we should be grieved when sin prevails in our culture. And so looking forward to the heavenly city does not negate earthly life and concerns. Why did Jacob go into Egypt? Because he was starving. That's why he sent his children there. We have a concern for the things of this world. We certainly do. And here's here's something that we have to become aware of, and we probably are aware of this, but we have to fight this, and that is this. Is we easily get imbalanced on things, don't we? It's really easy to get imbalanced, and Christians can do one of two things in regards to this. They can become imbalanced by making their primary focus the things of the world that are good, pursuing that civic realm, pursuing some of the the good things. They can become imbalanced by making that their sole focus, or on the other hand, they can retreat from the world, retreat everything and not care. Neither position is right nor biblical. The key word in the text is the word desire. But as it is, they desire a better country. And that's how we have to find this balance of how do we live well in this world. The idea of desire, that's the key word, it can be summed up with the two other ways that it's translated. It's translated in 1 Timothy as aspire and crave. Now, if you put those two words together, it means seeking something that you long for. And so they were seeking something that they longed for, they had a desire for it, they craved that, and they aspired towards that. And so as we try to understand how do we live this balanced life, if you long for the establishment of earthly existence and the accomplishment of that as your overarching goal, then we're out of step with our forefathers because our desire is here where there's dirt. And we have to come to grips with that. Paul gives us the proper... Perspective in Galatians in chapter 6, verse 14. He says this But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The crucifixion is death. He says the world has been crucified to him. But what do we see Paul doing in the very letter that we're reading? He's writing to a church that's existing in a society. The pursuit and the chase of worldly concerns was not what drove him. In fact, as we see Paul's writings, I think that what consumed him was God's glory. And the pursuit of God's glory was his desire to minister to the people of God. That was what drove him. The attainment in searching after the things of this world and to build this kingdom is not necessarily building the kingdom of Christ. But there's another implication we can draw from the text in Hebrews that that instructs us on life. Their living for the celestial country was, was part of their confession In other words, they made it clear as part of their confession that they were awaiting and looking forward to something that was better. So think about that. If this is part of their confession, and as you look at the totality of their lives with the bumps in the road that they hit and the mistakes that they made and the sinful choices they often faced, what do we see at the end of the day, their target was still the celestial city. And so if we have a love for this world as the driving factor of our life, it actually destroys our profession that there's something greater. Because this was part of their confession. You think, what are we living for? If, we're, if the answer is this, if the answer is we're living for this life then in effect, we've denied that there is an afterlife, isn't there? We've denied that that's something better. If we put all of our hopes and trusts in here, if we rest in whatever the next election brings as our hope, we're awaiting great disappointment. That's not a prophetic statement of the election, by the way, that's... Whatever there happens, we'll probably be disappointed. We don't rest our hope in these things. We have something better. And that word better is, is one of the, the, the key themes of this book of Hebrews. It's oftentimes repeated. It's, it's, we're told right from the beginning in chapter 1, Christ is superior, and it's Christ is better. We're told in chapter 7, we have a better hope. Chapter 7, again, a better covenant. And we're told in chapter 9, we're a bet, there's a better sacrifice. And then in chapter 10, we're told we have a better possession. What you have in Christ, just simply put, is better than anything you could have here. It's better than anything you have here. And so what's the point? The point is, is that we as Christians that get bogged down with temporal life... We have a a set course before us that we need to look at that's better. When we get bogged down, whether it be our desires, our struggles, or our setbacks, it's because we have taken our eyes off of the better hope, which is Christ, and thus we lose sight of the better country that's awaiting us, the Heavenly One. This is what they look to by faith. This is what the text says. Notice what it says after this is that they look for a Heavenly One. It says, Therefore, And this is such an important passage. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's such an encouragement that God's not ashamed. And what is shame? He's not embarrassed by them. But the text actually says he identifies himself by them. Now, if you keep this in the, in the realm of all these died in faith, and speaking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, I just want you to notice what, what the scripture actually says of these patriarchs. In Exodus in chapter 3, verse 6, listen to how God introduces himself I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He identifies himself by name with them. Not only is he not ashamed to call them their God, but he identifies himself with them. But what's what's our temptation? What's our temptation in a society that is unregenerate and hates God? Our temptation is to be ashamed of God. Our temptation is to be embarrassed of God and His Word. Our temptation is to be embarrassed that we actually believe the Bible says what it says, and we believe that what it says is true. Jesus warns us of this. Matthew 10.32, He says, So everyone who acknowledges Me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's our temptation, isn't it? That's our temptation to do this, but look what we are told. We have a better heavenly city, a heavenly home that is better than what we have now. So whatever shame we may bear by bearing the name of Christ... There's something greater, and that is Christ himself. That he has prepared a city where relief is finally attained. I just want you to notice this, as God identifies himself with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, a sinful man. Abraham... Sin like you sin. Abraham faced temptations and fell to temptation as you do. Abraham did not always perfectly express his trust in the coming Messiah. Sarah was a woman that doubted that the Lord could do what he promised he would do. And then he lie- she lied to the Lord. Isaac doubted the Lord's protection. Jacob. We, we could spend the next week talking about Jacob. His name means the deceiver. Isn't that interesting? That these that were very sinful, that the Lord calls, He calls them as His own and is not ashamed that's an amazing statement. How could this be that a perfectly holy and just God could not only identify himself, but then he's not embarrassed of them and their sin? How could this be? Well, because they're covered by the blood of Christ. And when the Father looks upon them, it is not their guilt he sees, but rather he sees the righteousness of his son obtained by faith. And the, the father is never ashamed of the son. The father cannot be ashamed of the son, but loves the son. And so if you're in Christ, he sees Christ in you. I love the song we sang this morning by Charles Wesley and. Not only does Charles Wesley give you a vocal exercise, but he also gives you good theology. He says this in verse 4, And can it be? No condemnation, now I dread. Did you hear that? Did you sing that this morning? No condemnation, now I dread. That means this, you don't fear death. Death. He says, "This Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through though He that through die or through Christ my own. That's an incredible statement, and it teaches us why." The Father's not ashamed. Are you you ashamed of your past? Are you ashamed of mistakes? Does it bother you? You ever think, how could I? Why did I do this? How could God love me and forgive me? Well, hear God's word to you. If you are in Christ, He is not ashamed of you and never will be. He will never depart from you. He will never forsake you because his son was forsaken on your account that you will never be forsaken. And what an honor that when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says this, Our Father. Our very prayers shows us that are taught by Jesus that God is not ashamed to be called our God. And that's why we approach Him in prayer as our Father. So how do we die well? Well, you know this, that you you have no home here. You're seeking one, and you're seeking that which is better and superior. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truths that are given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that a greater And more perfect home is awaiting us in heaven that has been prepared and built according to your design. And that, Father, we long for the day when we will be eventually reunited with our bodies and fit for eternity in your presence. Father, we long for this day. May you give us the eyes of faith to live in this time now That we not only see them from a distance, but we live with the abiding reality that they are true. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.